This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Today's episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes that hard work works, and for everyone working toward a goal, U.S. Bank is here to help. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. When you look at the week ahead, here's what you can expect. More and more stories on China-U.S. trade relations. What is remarkable about what happened this past week was that China made a fundamental miscalculation about the position and strength of the United States in these negotiations. They thought because of the pressure the president was putting on the Fed that the U.S. economy was weaker than it really is and that the administration badly wanted a deal and that China could get a deal without making the concessions it was ready to make just a few days ago. We'll get over that. We'll eventually come to an agreement. But what is ominous for the future is what happens if we have a situation that might involve a military conflict. That kind of miscalculation could have devastating consequences. So I hope whatever happens in these negotiations, Beijing will take a real look back and say, why did we make such a fundamental miscalculation? How can we get a better understanding of what actually is taking place in the United States, how decisions are made in Washington, messy though the process may be. So you don't have a mindset that can make that kind of miscalculation where they thought they could upend what they had agreed to and the U.S. would meekly go along. As these negotiations proceed, one thing the U.S. might do is unilaterally take away the tariffs that it imposed on steel and aluminum from Canada and Mexico. Now, what does that have to do with the China trade deal? What it shows is if you come to an agreement with the United States, as Canada and Mexico did, good things will happen, even if it wasn't part of the formal negotiations. So put a little carrot out there as well. You'll get punished with those tariffs, but by golly, if we come to an agreement, you're going to get some lollipops as well. While the focus is on China trade talks, Another area of the world that is heating up ominously militarily is Iran. We're sending extra forces over there. There have been meetings between our chiefs of staff, intelligence agents and agencies in this country. The Israelis have been involved. Something is cooking there. Don't be surprised if things escalate more and more as Iran makes a move to try to be the hegemic power in that region. Its economy is in bad shape. The U.S. sanctions are biting more and more. The Iranians are not getting relief as they thought they'd get from the Europeans. So we may be heading for something very hot in a very volatile region. And now for George Gilder. I've known George Gilder for almost 40 years. He's a great technologist, sees things around the corner. He was very big on Bitcoin years ago when everyone else was poo-pooing it. He recognized the flaws of Bitcoin, but he also saw where cryptocurrencies and the technology that spawned it would be very, very important for the future. George Gilder recognizes what others have recognized, that the way you get ahead is by creating new knowledge, finding either brand new things or improving existing things. 
You don't know how to do it today, but by golly, in a proper environment, you can do it for tomorrow. Uh, well, George, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. George Gilder is a best-selling author of the classic Wealth and Poverty, but he also has a new book out called Life After Google, The Fall of Big Data and the Rise of the Blockchain Economy. But he also did a book called Life After Television, The Coming Transformation of Media and American Life. And a quarter of a century ago, you said, George, that uh, we're going to have devices as portable as your watch, close as your wallet, we'll collect mail, deliver mail, give us news, navigate streets, recognize speech. By golly, it's here today. So you're, you're well worth listening to. And, and Steve Jobs passed that book around to his colleagues. So, so I feel I had some small influence in encouraging this trend. But he didn't give you Apple shares as a reward. He did not give me Apple shares. <laughs> but uh, you're now predicting a new era called the cryptocosm. But before getting to that, I'd like to uh, start with what's not ahead. As you know, there's a lot of talk about machines taking over, they're smarter than us, robots are going to do all our jobs, artificial intelligence is coming along, and most of us will be rendered useless. We'll need a universal income as we eat potato chips because there's nothing for us to do. Uh, but you make the point, machines and the human brain are not interchangeable, and that great computational power should not be confused with creativity. Explain. All that's completely true, as you've said. The World Wide Web, to sustain it with all its data centers and whatever, uh, takes huge plants all over the world churning away to sustain all the computers that comprise the zettabyte on the World Wide Web. The zettabyte in our heads, which is just the beginning of a map of the brain, not a complete map, just a map of connections, works on 14 watts. And uh, these clowns in Silicon Valley think they're duplicating our 14-watt zettabyte with their artificial intelligence tinker toys out there. And it's just a quixotic claim. It's wrong. They aren't anywhere near to reproducing the brain. They're nowhere near to a singularity. That is speed of processing and has nothing to do with consciousness or intelligence or creativity or any of the features that our brain show. Imagination, uh, counterfactuals, uh, invention. I think it was Mark Mills made the point that uh, we apply these ominous terms like artificial intelligence. Uh, we don't call, he said, airplanes artificial birds <laughs> or, or cars uh, artificial horses. Yeah, right, yeah, we have this ominous term that this thing is about to take us over. Yeah. Uh, you make the point that on all of these, they need an outside agent. Yeah, Walk that's us right. through that. This was the basic discovery behind all our reasonably intelligent machines that we produce simulating intelligent processes. Any logical system, including mathematics, including any computer based on mathematics, is necessarily dependent on propositions outside the box that can't be proven in the box. 
That's the essence of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. And that incompleteness theorem was reduplicated by Alan Turing in 1936 with his Turing machine, which again came to the conclusion that computing machine can't come to a conclusion that you can't even predict whether it's going to arrive at any result at all. And again, that any computing machine requires an oracle, as he called it. So uh, whether you call it a programmer, a creator, oracle, or an entrepreneur. If we're talking about economics, it's entrepreneur, and it's fundamental creativity. It's not Romer creativity or Nordhaus creativity. It's fundamental, absolute creativity. When I'm mentioning Paul Romer and William Nordhaus, they've won Nobel Prizes for their insights in, in economics, for their insights into entrepreneurship. And Romer's definition of entrepreneurship is the reassemble and reassemble chemical elements. And this shows just a desperate desire to reduce the entrepreneur to a function of material forces one way or another and deny the entrepreneur his absolute creativity. Creativity always comes as a surprise to us. If it didn't, we wouldn't need it. We could program it on our machines. But because it's always surprising, it can't be planned. If it wasn't surprising, planning would work and socialism would prevail. Well, this gets to uh, the essence of economic growth. We tend to think of economic growth as more services and more automobiles and houses and things like that. But you make the more fundamental point. It's knowledge, new knowledge. Wealth is knowledge. Walk us through that. Well, Thomas Sowell said it wonderfully when he... uh, announced that back in 1973, I think, that Neanderthal in his cave had all the physical resources we command today. The difference between our age and the Stone Age is entirely knowledge. Growth is learning, and learning curves are the prevailing model of capitalist growth. And the way we get knowledge is experiments. Yeah, that's exactly right. Every new business is the test, is an experimental test of an entrepreneurial proposition. And it can yield knowledge if it can fail, if it can be allowed to fail, if if bankruptcy is possible or other forms of, of rejection or failure are possible. This experimentation means enormous amount of failure. Uh, Take the Newton from Apple. It failed. Uh, Somebody said the people who created it had Uh, IQs that could boil water. (laughs) (laughs) But it it failed. But it also provided the technology, the basis for the uh, iPad, the iPhone, the iPod. So you learn, and even in pieces of failure, you lay the foundation for uh, future growth. But But take a different example. Today, Governments everywhere are guaranteeing success for solar panels. As a result, solar panels are being deployed all over the place. You see them cluttering up the landscape. But they can't actually 
impart energy to a particular house. You know, they, they only function if you link them to the grid and then assign arbitrarily the power to the owner of the solar panel. But if, if solar panels hadn't been subject to all these government guarantees, the industry would have learned how to produce some kind of fixture that could be installed in a house and for less than the price of the house and uh, actually contribute energy to distributed energy, not dependent on the grid, which would be a useful device. But the solar industry, because it's subject to guarantees and government subsidies, has been a complete blank spot for innovation. It, it, it's, there's nothing happening there. They're just deploying these panels that so uh, even though they make the panels cheaper, they're they're not uh, making the big break. Yeah, they got a learning curve on panel production, but they haven't made the inventions that need to be made in order to really allow an efficient solar facility, even in Las Vegas on the roofs of these uh, casinos. They still feed the energy off to the grid, which bogs down the grid. The grid has to buffer it all, and the erratic flows have to be smoothed. And it's it's just uh, a mistake to guarantee industries. You guarantee, and you halt learning. You halt progress. Well, you make the point. You say consciousness depends on faith, the ability to act without full knowledge, and this and this is uh, to be surprised and to surprise. Yeah that uh, you, you don't know what's going to happen. And even Steve Jobs, who said when asked if, you did mark, if he did marketing surveys, said, no, because people don't know what they want until I show them. Yeah. But he uh, sometimes he could show them, and they yeah. might not want it. It's yeah, taking right, the right. risk. <laughs> it's taking that risk. Yeah. You don't have full knowledge. That's... And as Born Lomborg uh, pointed out in terms of these solar panels, which uh, aid agencies are telling these third world households to do, he said research shows a diesel engine would do much better for them <laughs> than these solar panels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's get to uh, Google. Uh, you came back from a trip to China. You did 40 visits, uh, nine days, which is phenomenal. They're keenly interested. So with Google, you acknowledge it's an extraordinary achievement. In 20 years, these two PhD students have created one of the mightiest companies in the world. So first describe what is their model and why is their days of dominance maybe coming to an end? Well, I have just come back from China where I uh, saw Tencent and Alibaba and Baidu and ByteDance and all these new, fairly new companies that followed on the Google model, but which actually know how to collect money from their customers. These Chinese companies collect only 10 to 15% of their revenues from advertising. 85 to 90% is all collected by various ingenious ways of micropayments and automatic uh, payment mechanisms that they've developed that are quite brilliant and, uh, and give them actual customers who are paying them regularly for the goods and services that they provide. And Google, meanwhile, 
uh, collects 95% of its revenues from advertisers. Uh, producing advertisements that most of the time uh, nobody wants to see. And it, it's just fundamentally a, a model that won't prevail. And Facebook is following. This whole business of aggregating people by giving them free stuff, avoiding price signals, all the learning that I, we were describing, and avoiding the obligation to really provide rigorous security everywhere in order to collect data from the customers in order to provide guidance for advertisers. It's just a circuitous means of a business plan that I don't think will finally prevail. Now, you said about Google, uh, you've said they're having a nervous breakdown, they're uh facing impossible business problems, misunderstanding computer science, contradictions in strategy. Well, is it it's a great company now. It's, it, for the last 10 years, it's 12 years, it's been a, a great yeah. company. However, it's plighted its trust to giant data centers next to windmills and glaciers and big rivers to take away the heat. And it just is not an advanced model, and that sky computing is alternative model that I think is uh, emerging today with the help of the cryptocosm. That is blockchain, but also a hash graph and a, a variety of new models are emerging that represent a distributed computation. As we get to that, one, one more thing or two more things on uh, Google. Why their seeming lax attitude about security, where they say, that's up to you, not us? Well, that, they, they have been saying that. I mean, because they are, they're in the business of collecting your information and, and giving you free goods and services. Uh, Google does have a security model, and it's a centralized security model. It's to take all your data and... and uh, hide it behind firewalls and intrusion detection schemes and SWAT teams to descend on hackers who nonetheless managed to penetrate the defenses. It's an obsolete security model. Centralization is not safe. If you classify, you carefully tell us by exactly what's the most important data, the most classified data, and you know where it is because it's in that those big centralized data centers where governments hide stuff. One, one other thing on Google, why their attitude towards national security? They disdain the Pentagon, but they embrace China. I think it's ridiculous that they're so intimidated by small groups uh, you know, they have hundreds of thousands of employees and 5,000 signed some paper about not conniving with the evil Pentagon AI programs. And I, I just think they're having a nervous breakdown. I mean, they really are. Their, their whole culture is kind of self-defeating and and wrong. And so, so they, they're constantly doing inexplicable things as as people having nervous breakdowns seem to do. Now, you say we shouldn't regulate Google. You say, let's get to the happy future, which is unfolding now, the cryptocosm. 
Uh, describe Bell's Law and where, where that's leading us. Yeah, well, Bell's, Bell's Law is that every 10, every 10 years of Moore's Law, the doubling of computer power every couple of years, uh, produces a collective thousand-fold rise in total computer power, which in turn uh, requires a complete new architecture. And fortunately, it's on its way. Well, let's start with uh, blockchain uh, without getting into the science of it. In essence, it takes the information from a central source and spreads it over millions of computers. Is that accurate? That's, that's accurate. What it does is put the whole database on every node of the network, which is only possible because microchip storage technology has advanced so much faster than any other dimension of computation from disk drives to non-volatile memories, flash drives. So uh, to use a bad analogy, it's uh, in effect saying effectively rob half the banks in the world to rob one bank. That's right. That's, that's, that's a, a good analogy like that. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, it makes it virtually unhackable. Now, uh, how does one get the key? A private key? You you get a private key. And how how do we not have the problems of forgetting the key and all that kind of stuff? stuff. uh, Today, uh, we have to have keys, essentially, different keys, combinations of usernames, passwords, and other security data for every distinct website we visit if we plan any sort of serious activity. And uh, that means we have to know thousands of keys. Well, the blockchain reduces it to one private key or a very few private keys if you're nervous about your one and you don't change it. That's, that's you and the cryptocosm. And how is the key created? The key is created by a random process. But there, there are lots of ways to create random keys. We don't have to worry about forgetting them? Oh, well, we do have to worry about forgetting them. But it's, we got it's, to, it's, hard, it's harder to forget one than a hundred. That's right. So uh, with something like blockchain, you make a mistake. How do you correct the mistake? You do another transaction that corrects the previous transaction. Uh, there, there are lots of experiments being made with distributed means of uh, computation, and they're making tremendous gains and advances. Those performance issues are largely going away with new inventions. It's really exciting. I mean, a whole new internet is being invented as we speak, and various manifestations of it will be like Bitcoin is not gold. They, uh, Satoshi thought he was inventing a new form of gold, and he failed because he thought gold was running out. He spent too much time on college campuses and imagined that resources run out, which is uh, not uh, actually true in our universe. As long as we have human creativity. And Bitcoin, the volatility, people rightly say, renders it useless as real money. But you make the point with uh, people like Buterin and others uh, we will get to what Newton did with gold and the British pound. And that's a, a what I stable think. currency. I, re- I, I think you know money is real, as you have identified. It's a measuring stick, and so people will eventually, if they're actually trying to produce money, and money has properties that are very eminently desirable, they will arrive at something that 
duplicates the key functions of gold. One of the fruits of uh, this new world is IPOs. You've mentioned and others have mentioned how regulation as other factors have killed IPOs where we have a fraction of what even China does. Yeah. But now we have... China has three or four times more IPOs than we do now. But now uh, we we have this emerging ICOs, as you say, whether you call it uh, initial crypto offerings, initial cash offerings, initial Cayman Island offerings. (laughs) Initial coin (laughs) offerings. Coin offerings. Uh, Explain the phenomenon of what ICOs are doing. For the last 20 years, there's a 90% drop in IPOs, and uh, this is this is a really serious problem. It's resulted in a shrinkage of the stock market to only half as less than half as many public companies as it used to be. It's it's really depleted the entrepreneurial energies of the U.S. economy. It's a, it's a crisis, and one of the first great contributions of the cryptocosm was uh, Vitalik Buterin's Ethereum, which uh, defined the ERC tokens connected to smart contracts that could define legal issues of coins or currencies, and which have been called ICOs. Several thousand companies, many of them appalling, like the dot-com had its comedy hours. But nonetheless, it's billions of dollars that's being mobilized today to support a wide range of very fascinating companies. Socialism. Famously, you said in Wealth and Poverty, the idea is kaput. Why are so many people now looking at socialism, even if they don't seem to know what it really is? Uh, And you also said uh, humans seem to have a propensity sometimes for leftism, which gets to uh, the kind of seeming pessimism of Schumpeter in the Mm, 1940s. Why, why this seeming revival of socialism? Is just a flash in the pan or, or, or what? what? Well, what? I, th- I think capitalism has been suppressed and restricted so much that its creative fires are no longer self-evident to lots of people. And they think we've reached the end of the line. And uh, in which case, the economy is viewed as a zero-sum game. What some people win, somebody else has to lose. And that model leads to uh, a desire for the state to take care of you. And I mean, all the universities are teaching uh, the decline and fall of capitalism and its futility and its pollutant characteristics. And and that leads to this neo-socialist propensity. And I I really think that the campuses in the United States are just a real pit. And it's another example of of an attempt at government guarantees. The government guaranteed loans to all the students. That means they aren't loans. They're just kind of subsidies and bank benefits. And it's really destroyed the university. The universities didn't have to 
be inventive. They didn't have to compete. Uh, there's always more money. So uh, why not build another gym and, uh, and hire another 50 diversity officers and, and a transgender center and, you know, just complete comedy of errors going on all around the universities. And it's, it's tragic. And we got to, you know, the, again, the cryptocosm and the internet and new educational forms have got to arise. There's none of this nonsense in the college. I've just visited all the leading colleges of China, believe it or not. I, I'm not never invited to co leading colleges in the United States. But, uh, you know, they're just terrific students. There's none of this evident uh, craziness. They do, they are in a communist regime, but they, as a result of that, they really believe in capitalism. And uh, in the book, you make reference to the 1517 movement, yes. uh, marking uh, Luther's 95 theses. And one of them was, uh, why out of 5,200 colleges and universities, only one point of view emerges. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, there seems to be a crisis. Uh, and that's led to student debt. And you propose the one and a half trillion of debt should be wiped out. Yeah, I, I really think so. I think the debt should be wiped out. Well, should that be with the proviso? No more student loans, no more uh, yeah, Pell the, Grants? No more guaranteed student loans. And the colleges that took this money and just enriched themselves and hired hundreds more bureaucrats uh, should have to give the money back. I mean, many of them have vast endowments, and here they took stuck money on their students to uh, finance their crazed indulgences. It's, uh, I, I think it's, it really is an outrage. We should understand what's going on in our universities is an outrage. It's not meritocratic anymore. It's cultivating racism in all their... And why, why their hostility to real science and to manufacturing and technology? They always portray it as uh, oppressing us rather than... Uh, huge, great possibilities from yep. Yeah, They're teaching everybody how to stop things rather than to start them. This is because it produces wealth beyond their reach and uh, beyond their capabilities. They're, you know, each of them gets assigned to some sort of narrow niche of research that yields some utilitarian PhD that's worthless in the world, so they want to discredit the world. And uh, we discussed your view that regulation don't regulate the fangs, let uh, technology and creativity yeah, yeah, deal it, with them. This terrible words, net neutrality, which is just a fancy way of saying regulating and price controls. Walk yeah. us through net neutrality and why you think it's such nonsense. Well, there's only, uh, only one thing thing determines whether you got to allocate bandwidth to different applicants for it and that is how much bandwidth there is so uh the only thing that makes any difference for network neutrality is how much investment you get in expanding bandwidth and how much uh innovation there is in the network and if you impose federal price controls on every link it just stifles investment, and it's quite evident. You know that these bandwidth companies are buying content now. They're you know they're buying the Huffington Post and the you know all these uh, 
Time Warner, you know, they're they're leaving the bandwidth business in order to produce Go Hollywood. And it's always been a sure sign of a failing company when it goes Hollywood. That just really means they have no idea what to do with their money and, and they're going to waste it on Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> one, one final thing, uh, favorite hobby horse of both of us, the trade gap. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, the trade gap is, is just a result of being an attractive location to invest. I mean, I, uh, the, tra- the whole trade gap rationale, I don't even know where to start on this because there, there are a thousand ways trade gap thinking is wrong. But, uh, but basically, the trade gap assumes that the processes for producing goods and services around the world govern where capital flows. And uh, I think that the trade gap is an effect of capital flows rather than capital flows being an effect of the trade gap. And since capital can flow instantly through the worldwide webs of glass and light, while new companies require factories and investments and long-term commitments. And it's obvious that capital movements will dominate trade movements. And I think you've pointed out that roughly with the U.S. for 350 out of the last 400 years since Jamestown, we've had a merchandise trade deficit. And just look around at the terrible results. (laughs) Great point. (laughs) Thank you, George. Thank you so much, Steve. It's great to be here as always. Here's my read of the week, but as a bonus, you're going to get two reads of the week. One is a brief piece called Want an Energy Revolution? by Mark Mills in the City Journal. It can be found on city-journal.org. And what Mills discusses is the idea that we're going to get an energy, especially alternative energy, the kind of radical productivity increases we got with the information revolution. But he makes the point, information production and energy production involve two very different laws of physics. And that what worked in the information world is going to be very different from the energy world. And he makes the point, We're going to get alternative energy sources, not from subsidizing yesterday's technologies like wind and solar, which will only get incremental improvements, but what Bill Gates calls scientific miracles. The kind of breakthroughs you get that people don't anticipate that look like they're magic, and then like the internet, seem to be part of the landscape that's been with us forever. So in terms of the future of energy, don't look to the past, Look to those entrepreneurs in the laboratories and garages doing things we don't even know about today that are going to transform the landscape tomorrow. Talking about energy, a lot of energy is being expended these days on Attorney General Bill Barr and talk of a constitutional crisis. So what's behind all of this controversy? Well, you could do no better than to read an article from the May 3rd Wall Street Journal by Kimberly Strassel, and she makes the point Attorney General Barr is getting attacked because his probe endangers powerful people. He's going to look hard at what happened. Why did we get this investigation into so-called Russian collusion in 2015 and 2016? 
and there are a lot of people who are very worried about what he might find. She gives a good background on what's the true story of what we're reading in the headlines today. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 